0: Here is iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book, Delicate Courage,
1: an exquisite journey of love, death, and eternal communication, and the author is Jim Gary. and Jim joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Jim.
2: Hi, Steve. A pleasure to be with you today.
1: Great to have you with us. Uh, This is quite a story of the history, your involvement, and really the beginnings of AIDS. Uh, Let me read what you have written. Delicate Courage is a strikingly honest and intimately revealing personal memoir of the man who formed the first AIDS support group in the world and developed San Francisco's Shanty Project into a worldwide respected model of AIDS services. The book also details Jim's ongoing integration of his sexuality and spirituality and his 20-year relationship with his partner, Jess Randall, who passed of AIDS in 1998. Delicate Courage concludes with over 35 uplifting after-death communications Jim experienced following Jess's passing. Well, this is obviously very comprehensive. Uh, Jim... Give us the motivation to publish this work.
2: Well, Steve, the motivation originally started back in the early 80s. I had begun working with people with AIDS in 1981 and I realized that I was in a unique position. Uh, I was working for Shanti Project uh, and became executive director of that organization in March of 1982, just at the beginning of the emergence of AIDS in San Francisco. And of course there was tremendous uh, negative stereotypes at the time that were prevalent in the community about who acquired this illness. Uh, that they were very sexually active people, that they were uh, used a lot of drugs, that they were sort of degenerate and um, uh, I realized after forming and and meeting with um, the first people to be diagnosed in the city, that that was simply not true. Many of the men in my first support group that met in my living room had been in primarily monogamous relationships. Some of them had never really experimented that much with any type of recreational drugs. So I think I was one of the first people actually in the country to realize that what was happening this virus could indeed happen to anyone but of course the virus wasn't even really um, scientifically discovered until 1984 so there was just a lot of misconceptions a lot of hysteria in the community at that time. Lovers were asking their partners to leave. Families were want, not wanting their children to come home for fear of possible uh, contagion issues. Funeral homes were refusing to uh, pick up the body of the dist- initial motivation was to portray people with this illness in the way that I knew them to be. Now, that changed as I continued to work uh, with uh, Shanti Project until late 1988. Uh, prior to the HIV epidemic, I had met Jess Randall in, also in 1978, and we formed a uh, bond that lasted 20 years. So, our love relationship um, was prior to AIDS and throughout the entire uh, AIDS epidemic. He was, Jess, and I both actually were officially diagnosed ourselves with uh, AIDS and HIV in 1992 after we had relocated to Florida. So then the book's focus changed, um, start to operate more uh, the triumphant nature of love in the face of adversity. How two men had met prior to the AIDS epidemic had played a key role in combating um, the illness and setting up the first support services in the world, Um, and then their ensuing relationship, uh, the diagnosis of of both, and then the eventual illness process and death of Jess, Um, and then some remarkable um, after-death communications um, that I interspersed with um, my journal entries that I kept following his passing.
1: Well, you at first, I guess, had to uh, reconcile your Catholic upbringing with your lifestyle.
2: That was was somewhat of an issue. I I think more of an issue there, Steve, was that my early years were spent in Washington, D.C. I grew up in the time of the Vietnam War, And um, of course, that was a very unpopular war in this country, and I had a lot of problems at that time um, with the Catholic Church's position on the war in Vietnam. I mean, I was going to um, a high school in Annapolis, and uh, the priest, and the bishops were blessing the um, midshipmen from the uh, Naval Academy going off to war, and of course we were seeing horrific pictures of women and children being napalmed, and I started to sort of, you know, question at that time um, my own spiritual beliefs, and you really believe in a... Um, forgiving God, a loving God, do I really believe in turning the other cheek, do I believe in the sanctity of life? So that really, uh, the Vietnam War conflict itself, I think was much of the catalyst that made me question my, my relationship with the Catholic Church. And And uh, my parents are still very devout Catholics, and, and we have a very close relationship. But for me, it was the right path to leave the church and to... Um, Explored different uh, spiritual beliefs. I, I studied a lot of Eastern beliefs. My my sexuality, um, I struggled with that. I, I guess as many young uh, people do around the age of fourteen and fifteen. I, I think I tried to repress it. I actually thought of of entering the seminary as away, and I'm seeing my sexuality, but then I decided I wouldn't be happy unless I could be Pope, (laughs) because I would definitely want to change things in the Catholic Church, so I didn't really see that happening, and uh, so um, I just sort of explored my own own path, which um, actually has turned out to be just fine.
1: Well, tell us about your after-death communications with Jim. You have uh, over 35 uplifting, as you call them, after-death communications that you experienced after Jess's passing.
2: Right. The interesting thing there, Steve, is I had worked with people with uh, life-threatening illness for um twenty five years, and uh, the at Shanti project, Shanti is a Sanskrit word meaning inner peace. fact about our organization is we did not have a spiritual agenda. We weren't trying to get our clients to look at their dying process or their grieving process in, in any particular way other than the way that was right for them. So, in the many clients that I worked with who had died, I never had any sense of their energy or their presence uh, after they passed Now, Jess and I both he was a transcendental meditation teacher, and uh, we were both involved you know in spirituality much of our life, and we had talked at if there was any way of communicating. Uh, after one of us passed, so that would be wonderful. And um, a lot of the types of communication um, involve electrical, um, the flickering of lights, just would often refer to god as nature and he had a tremendous love of, of nature and um, yellow butterflies was a particular favorite uh, creature of his and i've had just numerous experiences of, of yellow butterflies appearing at the most odd time I, uh recently Um, I was out on a boat uh, with uh, several friends and um, it was a beautiful day in the Halifax River here in Florida and uh, suddenly uh, we were surrounded by these uh, five or six porpoises about 10 feet away from our boat as we were docked in the water having a little lunch and they just sort of played magically around us and I suddenly got this be Jeff's presence um, in a very strong way and of course I just said oh well I'm just sort of imagining this or started to dismiss it but it was strong enough that I verbalized it to my friend Jeff that was sitting next to me I said I really feel somehow Jeff had Uh, Jess had something to do with this. This is such a magical moment. And within 30 seconds after saying that thought out loud, a yellow butterfly started to come across the water, fly across the boat, and landed on my arm and remained there for about 10 seconds and then took flight. So when you have that type of experience, um, it's very hard to be skeptical, and that's just one of the many types of affirmations that I've had uh, since his passing.
1: Now, you were there in San Francisco when the assassinations of Mayor George Moscone and Supervisor Harvey Milk occurred. What kind of impact did that have on you?
2: Well, that was in the year, see, 78 was a very powerful year. That was the year that I met Jess. That was the year that I um, began working for Shanti Project, and that was the year that uh, Senator John Briggs from Fullerton, California, uh, proposed an initiative to the voters of uh, California that... Attempted to fire all gay and lesbian school teachers. And it, yet it went beyond that, that it also sought to fire any non gay or lesbian school teacher that openly associated with any known gay or lesbian school teacher. So when that was proposed, At first, voters of California, it was seen as passing by 60%. So in June of that year, I left my job um, uh, doing massage and working with the terminally ill on the ecology floor in San Francisco and began working for the Bay Area Committee against the Briggs Initiative where I organized um, a cadre of volunteers to set up tables throughout the Bay Area and to begin to educate the public about how um, awful this initiative was. It was at that time that I met Supervisor Harvey Melk, who was working on a statewide level to defeat the initiative. We gathered over 10,000 signatures and sent them to President Carter who also came out within maybe six weeks before the actual vote against the initiative, celebrated um, election night with both George Moscone, our, our mayor, and Supervisor Harvey Milk. And within two weeks after that, we had the mass suicides at uh, Guyana, which, of course, were many people from San Francisco who were part of Jim Jones' group, uh, that had followed him uh, to Guyana, and that was followed within a week of the assassination of uh, Mayor Moscone and Supervisor Milk. It was a very difficult time um, for San Francisco. It's probably probably much like the World Trade Center was for um, the people of New York. It was a it was a period of tremendous hopelessness, uh, palpable grief uh, permeated the city. Um, And it was a feeling, are we ever going to be able to lift ourselves out of this uh, depression?
1: You said that many readers have gained insight into their own lives and relationships by being exposed on such a deep personal level to the relationship that Jess and you shared together
2: right that's been one of the interesting things about the the book I, i'm currently president of our local daytona beach uh, duplicate bridge club where we have over 350 members almost all of whom are heterosexual and of course many of the members of the club have uh, purchased the book have read it. I've just been awed how it's touched their lives. I mean, many of them have not known uh, intimately um, a gay person or have heard or read about um, a gay relationship. And the feedback that I've gotten is that they're just oftentimes just blown away. They tell me they wish they had known that depth of love in their own life. So that's been very affirming uh, for me. I mean, the book Delicate Courage speaks of a very deep love that um despite the uh tragedies that we faced, the many deaths of friends and and Jess's uh debilitating illness, we um had an amazing journey together and we always focused on the present day us we we traveled extensively after he was diagnosed through uh, the United States and Canada to many of the national parks. Uh, he had a love for Las Vegas. We tried to get out there uh, at least twice a year, even when he was on IVs and and hooked up to all types of um, paraphernalia that was necessary for his uh, longevity. Um, So, uh, yes, the book has spoken to a much wider uh, cross-section of people than I had originally thought.
1: Well, the title of the book, Delicate Courage, An Exquisite Journey of Love, Death, and Eternal Communication. The author is Jim Gary. Jim, tell us how to get your book.
2: You can get the book uh, on my own website, which is uh, www.delicatecourage.com. The Sounds and I also have a blog on that website and you can order the book on that website it's also available through barnesandnoble.com and amazon.com but if you order it on my website I'll personally autograph it for you and I actually think it's cheaper on my website
1: well thank you Jim thanks for being with us on iUniverse Radio All right, thank you very much Steve you have a great day
0: You're listening to iUniverse Radio. We'll be back right after these messages. Get ready for the Not-So-Soccer Mom, Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon
3: Central, on Togi Nat with Jill Hickey. You name it, from politics to pop culture to Jill's search for the perfect bronzer and chicken salad. The Not-So-Soccer Mom will weigh in on it all. The sentence, I have no opinion about that, is one that Jill has never uttered. In the early 90s, Jill finally decided to put her thoughts, opinions, mom advice, love of pop culture, hummus, and Starbucks, working out, cosmetic shopping, and politics into an actual website, and thus NotSoSoccerMom.com was born. Shortly after her fourth child, a boy, Jerome, now she's really got tons of topics to share with you. This is Laugh Out Loud Funny, and we're not kidding What's a loud Nebraska girl who lived in Little Rock for many years and now is up in the Northeast doing, chronicling her opinions on everything? The wheels aren't off yet, but it's close. It's the Not-So-Soccer Bomb with Jill Hickey. Tuesday afternoons at 1 Eastern, noon Central on togynet.com. Whether you're four and a half or 100, you can retrain your brain. Learning Rx, the radio show, is on Toginet.com, Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central Time with Martin Kruger. Learning Rx programs are quick, they're efficient, they're life changing, and they're permanent. Unlike tutoring, cognitive skills training or brain training targets the root issue causing learning struggles. Time and money spent on chronic tutoring is a clear signal of cognitive skill deficiency. That's where Learning Rx comes in. Call today 903 617 6899. 903 617 6899. Then join us for the show here every Thursday morning at 8 a.m. And take advantage of the power it holds to improve your life. There are so many brain training issues that Learning Rx can help you with. It's not a product, it's an experience. So join us for Learning Rx, the radio show with Martin Kruger. Thursday mornings at 8 a.m. Central on TogiNet.com.
0: Welcome back to iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the
1: book, Crow's Row, and the author is Julie Hockley. And Julie joins us now on iUniverse Radio. Hello, Julie.
4: Hi, thanks for having
1: me. Well, this story, gangs, love, courage, death, suspense. Let me read what you have written College student Emily Shepard contemplates a forlorn summer without her roommates when she is abducted after witnessing a man being murdered. She is taken to an armed compound where she discovers information about her deceased brother and falls in love with Cameron, her captor. So this story, Julia, what motivated you to write this?
4: well i I turned thirty, which was a big number for me um uh, but more so when my husband and I had been uh, finally decided to uh settle down as they say and, and start to decide to start a family so I found that very scary not you know we were ready, but at the same time uh it it was I knew my life was about to change drastically and and i had this idea for the book for a very long time, but being busy with work and whatnot, I never actually sat down to write it and and then when I turned 30. That was the time to finally sit down and write this. Before I didn't have enough time anymore. So uh, the the initial idea for the book came to me in a dream about M&M. If you can believe it. it it was quite a few when uh, uh, when Eminem's movie had, had was fairly popular back then, and uh, not to scare anybody off. But Eminem is not into book <laughs> at all. But the idea came to me after uh, that dream, and there's a portion of chapter three, which is uh, the end of chapter three, is is how my dr- my dream ended. Um, and uh, this is how the book came to, to play, and I, I suddenly just decided to sit down and, and write the story, and uh, the 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 whole story is not completely written at this point. This is just the first book of uh, many books to come to finish that, the actual story of Emmeline Cameron.
1: Crow's Row, the title. Of why choose this kind of a title?
4: Crows are, are symbolic in Aboriginal culture. They signify um, a creature that can go from uh, the, un, the underworld or death into our, our world and our society. And the crows are Cameron's gang, essentially, are, who are able to go from, one, from the underworld and still be living within our world as well.
1: So she, at the beginning of the book, witnesses a man being murdered. And does this man, uh, is it significant of who he is, or is it just the event?
4: No, it is quite significant, but you don't find out until probably towards the end of the book why it was significant, what she saw, and why she was taken.
1: And she's abducted, but is even surprised that she's still alive. Exactly.
4: Exactly. And they, and she, did, she knows that she should probably be dead. I mean, somebody witnesses a murder within the organized crime uh, world um, would not be alive to tell about it. Yet here she finds herself waking up, and instead of having killed her, they've taken her, and she doesn't understand why.
1: And that's when she meets Cameron, uh, when she wakes up? That's right.
4: And when she wakes up, she meets Cameron prior to... Uh, uh, to the, the actual murder, um, but then, um, having been around, that's where she ends up being witness to a murder. Uh, and then once she wakes up, there's Cameron, and then that's when Emily falls into his world.
1: So he has some attraction to her right away.
4: Yes, and, and uh, you'll find out throughout the book that the, he's had an attraction to her for many years. He's known about her for a very long time. She has not known about him him.
1: And uh, part of that is that her brother was the head of the gang at one time.
4: That's correct. So uh, her brother, who uh, passed away, um, was uh, the, the gang's leader, and then was uh, who is, and the gang's leader is now Cameron. So you find out how uh, they're all linked together.
1: Now that's her brother Bill, and unfortunately uh, he dies uh, in a drug-related kind of an event, but Cameron, how would you describe him? Let's get into the character, into the mind of Cameron.
4: Well, Cameron is, I guess, the, the ultimate bad boy who is uh, who, who wishes he was anywhere else but where he is right now. Um, he's extremely intelligent and uh, obviously very handsome as well, uh, and uh, he's, you know, the perfect man at the same time being the worst man ever <laughs> because he is a, he's a drug Lord. He's not, he, he's not just a, a crime boss, but he's the leader of all crime bosses in the United States at his very young age. So he's extremely intelligent, had not been able to find his way uh, to the top uh, of the underworld. Uh, but at the same time, he wishes he was anything but that so that he could be in Emily's world.
1: So he's the head of this drug Cartel of such or drug gangs, or this these gangs that deal with drugs, but he's also a killer. He is. I mean, Emily has seen that. Oh, and Emily has seen it.
4: Mm-hmm.
1: Mm. So why is she attracted to Cameron? Is this the ultimate question of all women who get attracted or end Absolutely. up with the bad boy?
4: Exactly, and that's what she keeps asking herself why. Why she knows the Killer, yet when he's around her, he's very, very different. Uh, he he he's gentle, and she sees the the real side of him, or she uh, see, thinks it's the real side of him, uh, who's this very gentle, uh, beautiful man. But uh, then there is the other side that she knows about the drugs, the uh, the murder, the the organized crime, all these things, and she's she's torn.
1: So this love story, you feel that that's a kind of uh, theme in a book that actually everybody is uh, attracted to, wants to learn more.
4: Absolutely. I mean, it, it, women always ask themselves why they, they, they go for the bad boy. What it is about the bad boy that uh, attracts them to them is it that they want to change them or, or they, they, they like the excitement or the adventure or uh, there's so much about it, but at the same time, I'm always that there's always that one person who is perfect for you. Uh, I think women will, will 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 definitely want to to go for that type of book. It's the type of book I want to read, anyways.
1: This is what you call obsessive young love.
4: Absolutely, yeah. Where you you just can't be without one another.
1: Now, uh, what about the theme of legalization of drugs? Is that something that you're advocating?
4: Um, no, absolutely not. But I think there is a, uh, uh, a at, at some point in the book there there's a discussion of 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 drugs because Emily questions herself. She she her brother having uh, died of uh, of a drug related death. Uh, she's always been a, extremely you know, against drugs and, and yet find herself falling in love with a drug lord. Um, and at some point in a the book, there is a discussion on um, drugs really bad, you know, and, and whether or not they should legalize them or not.
1: Tell us about, is it uh, Rocco?
4: Rocco, yes.
1: Who is Rocco?
4: Roc- well, Rocco uh, is uh, Cameron's brother. Um, or step-brother. So you find out the, uh, quite a bit about Cameron's past. He comes from uh, um, probably not the best uh, uh, family, or, or he, and, and was, uh, his mother has had several children by different fathers, uh, and uh, Rocco is one of them. So Rocco wants to be in, in Cameron's gang. He looks up to his big brother. And, uh, and 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 wants nothing more than uh, than to be given a job within the gang. But Cameron wants to avoid this at all costs, and, will, and never wants to let his little brother fall on the same path that he's had to fall into. So there, there's there's always that constant that struggle between kind of Cameron and Raw. And Rocco is the is young. He's 15, uh, and uh, he's. Uh, He's uh he's a funny character. <laughs> he brings a lot of life to uh to Cameron and Emily's
1: world. And does he have a or what kind of relationship does he have with Emily?
4: Well, he he and Emily may essentially become best friends because they end up spending their most time together. So uh Emily even they you know they 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 cut a few years of, uh difference in terms of age, but at the same time, they build a very close relationship having spent all their time together um, at, uh, at the farm.
1: Now, there is someone, the, obviously in this kind of uh, community of gangs, there's always another gang, right, that wants to uh, become the, the top gang. Exactly. And so we have a rival gang leader what's his name
4: uh, his name is shield and uh and there there is a, a you 'll find out through the book that there is a, a a significant connection to emily uh with shield as well and uh, shield not only uh is, is wants the power but also wants the money that's associated with it because uh, obviously being the the leader of the underworld has a uh, a significant income coming with that with uh, that position. So uh, Shield wants all of that.
1: And in order to gain that, he has to get rid of Cameron.
4: He has to get rid of Cameron, but or, control, or learn to control, uh, have a way to control Cameron. Because getting rid of Cameron uh, won't necessarily bring him the leadership. Uh, the other leaders would never allow that. So uh, he needs to be able to control the Cameron. And by uh, getting to Emily, he, he would be able to control Cameron.
1: Well, we've often heard about gangs, that they replace the family, the uh, traditional family. And uh, your book, Crow's Row, uh, defines that or comments on that?
4: Absolutely, And at some point, Emily, you find out a little bit about Emily's past. Uh, Emily comes from a very affluent family, um, yet doesn't see them as her family. She's she, Her family are, are uh, controlled by money and, and, and their own uh, quest for money. And then she finds uh, she's not close to her parents, her mother and father, uh, and uh, has lost her brother, who was her very best friend. And uh, find, finds herself in, in Cameron's gang and and sees that they are more of a family than she's ever had, and with the family of the blood family that she's had. So these kids who, who've you know had to find themselves uh, a way of surviving and, and joined this gang to in, in order to survive are actually more of a family than she she's ever had.
1: What age group does your book appeal to?
4: Uh, well, the book was written for teens, um, late, to, uh, I would say, uh, uh, 16 to years or older. But it actually seems to appeal more to um, uh, the crowd of uh, 20-something and up. Um, because of the love story, and and uh, probably a little bit more about the, the same type of crowd who would have liked uh, Twilight, for example. Um, there's absolutely no werewolves or vampires in the book, but um, the the love story and the struggle, the the young love struggle, I think will appeal to. Uh, uh, to quite a few people, and also appeals to men because there is uh, uh, the, the, the story is uh, is set in the underworld. So there's gangs, there's the discussion of drugs, there's uh, uh, there's the violence of of, of, of uh, organized crime in the underworld.
1: Uh, give us the quote that you use at the beginning of the book from Plato that that captures, I guess, the whole theme of your book.
4: So the quote is: "The man who desires not what is not available to him, and what he doesn't already have in his possession, and what he neither has nor his, himself is that which he lacks. That is what he wants and desires."
1: So, Cameron and others are always searching for themselves.
4: Searching for themselves, or searching? Uh, Cameron wants. Um, to be with Emily. That's all he wants. But he will never be in Emily's world. He'll never be the type, the type of person, given his background, who um, would be in Emily's world. And he wants uh, what he neither has uh, nor himself is. That's what he wants most and desires. And the, the same applies for Emily. She would give everything up for her path, be with Cameron and being Cameron's world, even though it's a, it's a dangerous world. She just wants to be with him. So again, what she doesn't have, what she isn't, that's what she wants most.
1: Well, Julie, we appreciate you being with us on iUniverse Radio. The title of the book, Crow's Row. Julie Hockley, tell us how to get your book.
5: Well, it's,
4: uh, it's available on, on all online web- websites, um, and uh, including uh, the uh, iUniverse's website. You can just uh, go there, and it's available in hardcover, paperback, as well as uh, the e-copy. So uh, available everywhere.
1: Thank you, Julie.
4: Thank you. Yes, why don't you look up the schedules on this radio station and join me and Beatles listeners everywhere to hear the latest releases from the Beatles on Beatles and Beyond with Pete Dix.
3: Girlfriend It is on TuggyNet.
0: To iUniverse Radio with host Steve Jorgensen. The title of the book
1: Executive Thinking From Brightness to Brilliance. We have co authors. We have Dr. Morris Graham and Dr. Kevin bays Hello, gentlemen.
5: Hello, Steve. Good morning. Good, morning.
1: <laughs> Good to have you with us all the way from Hawaii. Uh, It's a tremendous subject we're going to talk about because most of us may think that we can't increase our mental capacity. You are here to set the record straight. Let me read a couple things you've written. Life is about how much we think. Thinking is about how much mental capacity we possess. Developing the spatial capacity to think higher, wider, and deeper means breaking away from the effects of years of flat thinking or educational backgrounds that stifle creative and innovative potential. This book helps the reader to expand their mental agility through the development of higher order processes and discover a whole new world of thinking That's what the world needs, I'm sure, is a whole new world of thinking, doesn't it?
5: That's true.
1: Well, why don't we first, uh, uh, Dr. Graham, why don't you give us your background, and then, uh, Dr. Bayes, you give us your background.
6: Sure. Just just, uh, Morris, uh, Graham. I uh, came out of a Ph.D. program in uh, cognitive development, cognitive psychology, and uh, later did a postdoctorate at Edinburgh uh, in Scotland in uh, organizational development, which I got into the leadership development side and uh, had some very early interest in terms of working under Margaret Thatcher's programs, trying to turn the economy around in the UK. And, uh, and from there, I went out to work under Lee Kuan Yew Yu in, in Singapore was very much invested in trying to create a smart, smart culture. Uh, that, was their, that was their competitive edge. Then came back, of course, to the U.S. and, and was a professor uh, a number of years and did a lot of consulting with CEOs, executives. of came together uh, for me from the cognitive the neuroscience, the uh, leadership development, and be able to see there was a bridge, more than a bridge. There's a way that we could enhance uh, so-called brilliance among our leaders. Some things, some, some things we really missed that never came across the bridge in terms of really developing our leadership in this country. So that's my kind of historical,
5: <laughs> historical run, Kevin. <Yeah. laughs> um, this is Dr. Kevin Bayes, and um, I graduated from Young University in Provo, Utah in uh, 1986. And I went to the Michigan College of Optometry, where I studied optometry, and my particular interest in school was the topic of vision science. And vision science has to do with all of the three-dimensional perceptual elements of vision that are in addition to the eyeglass kind of issues, or disease issues. And uh, I've been practicing here in Hawaii for 19 years, and my emphasis, I've had... uh, science and vision science academies for the last uh, 19 years where I've worked with primarily kids between about age 13 and 25 uh, developing uh, their ability to think in three dimensions and also we have PhDs on hand that also help we we teach 5th, 6th, 7th and 8th graders physics and chemistry (laughs) that's another unusual thing that I've been working with
1: My goodness that's extraordinary. Now most of us think gentlemen that we are restricted to our IQ. We've been taught that uh, ever since I was younger. Uh, You know whatever your IQ is probably is going to determine how well you're going to do in life. Uh, How do you see IQ? Okay
6: I'll I'll start and uh, Dr. Bates is uh, is a uh, wonderful scientist especially in the area of intelligence. Um, it's really how we process, and we didn't realize that IQ is kind of a fixed concept, but the ability to, to process information, the technology now can a- actually help us. Processing, um, facial processing, which is the single best predictor of career success from the 35-year study they did out of John Hopkins. So that can move. That can move up. We can actually change um, people's ability to to process information, to be able to think three dimensionally, and uh, that's the most exciting thing. You know, I went through traditional psychology, and you know, IQ was like give or take five points; it was pretty fixed. But um, we don't even talk about IQ in the book. We talk about the ability to process, ability to think, a wider, higher, thicker, um, and in a way that creates. Uh, Innovation and creates uh, the creativity needed and so forth. So um, that's the most exciting thing. You can take somebody where they're at and and in six months we can actually see a phenomenal change in somebody's thinking through visual information processing technology, the way we work with them. So to
5: me, it's a major, major breakthrough. (laughs) This is Dr. Bates. Yeah, I'd like to add to what Dr. Graham said. We have one of the great revelations of the last 19 years for me has been that we have seen in three- to six-month periods a standard deviation or even two standard deviation changes in people's ability, in verbal math, spatial ability, uh, IQ, virtually just about anything that has to do with thinking.
1: <laughs> and that is that with all age groups?
5: Well, no, I've, I've, I've never worked extensively with little kids now. My groups are always mm. older kids. So we're talking, my experiences have been 13, 13 to 25 uh, specifically. But inherit, whenever you do a program with kids and you raise their abilities, there's always some parents that beg you to come on. And so I've had 44 and 54-year-old people that after their kids have did a bunch of stuff, they've decided for a, a program for me to help them with it too. And uh, what we found is that age is not a factor in the ability to, you just need more intense experiences. So maybe the experiences that a 12- or 13-year-old needs, um, you might have to have a little bit more intensive an experience. But intense just means more fun, more expansion, more development. But uh, we absolutely, nobody's froze. We know that for sure.
1: Let's talk about this model. You call it a model of five brights. Let's kind of give an overview of what those five brights are.
5: Well, uh, at the first level is the one that we're all pretty familiar with is verbal ability. And in essence, in verbal ability, we're trying to, uh, the model we always like to use is Socrates, being able to analyze things, reason, inductive, deductive, with words. And, uh, but that's only part of the picture. Uh, The next area we look at is quantitative. Everybody knows quantitative because they get quantitative in school. You don't get verbal in school directly, but you take you know, you get reading and writing and things that lead into verbal, but everybody takes math in America, so, and and Newton's pretty much our our marker for that, but there's a lot of other great mathematicians too. But it's the ability to solve problems not with words only, but with numbers, okay? And then the third level, of course, is is the ability to think in three dimensions. It's the ability to think like Albert Einstein did. Einstein described his thinking not as with words so much or numbers, but more with pictures and the ability to, to think in three dimensions. And so the spatial ability is an area that's often overlooked. Uh, but visual-spatial processing is how everything in the world is made. Everything, Every store you go to, every building that you see has to be made and created by someone, and the primary ability that is used to do those things is spatial ability. And that's my area of expertise. <laughs> And then our last area that we talk about is championship team. And that has to be, even if you've got verbal ability and you've got uh, mathematical or quantitative ability and spatial ability, the speed at which you're able to do these is the thing that sends you into orbit as far as uh, brain power. (laughs) Dr. Graham? Yeah, it's the execution there.
6: And, of course, the fifth dimension is, of course, uh, character capacity. We had to come back with a lot of our top leadership uh, in the country and, and look at what made brilliant leaders over them. Uh, I came out of the U.K., of course, uh, Look at the Churchills, the Margaret Thatchers, and whatever, and realized that uh, the character capacity was was uh, the worldview view uh, where their character uh, actually hinted everything everything, the decision-making that they – it was a part of that decision-making was, was profoundly important. So that's really the last chapter of the book, but it's, it's, it's kind of an anchor to, you know, to hold the others together in a way that creates a brilliance in, in leadership. So,
1: when you talk about character, uh, are you talking about different uh, elements of a person's character, like uh, honesty or integrity?
6: Uh, yes, that's all part of it. In fact, that chapter, uh, my friend Steve, Stephen R. Covey was an influence uh, over the years and, uh, and and especially putting that kind of together, much of his work and looking at how important that is in terms of uh, leadership. So we actually uh, formulated that. Some of the uh, the Covey ideas were in there uh, as an influence. But, yes, yes to answer your question, um, <clears throat> That that represents the whole area of integrity and, and uh and there's a number of things in the in that chapter that really kind of bundle that up together as, as character that really elevates people, that really inspires people, that actually lead by example, that um, that lifts your, your organization to higher levels of passion, that are honorable and good and so forth. So yeah we try to really put that one quite succinctly <laughs> and call it character capacity
1: you use as a very uh... dynamic example is walt disney
6: Uh huh.
1: tell us a little bit about what you learned from walt disney
6: well i guess i think i grew up in Southern california i was an immigrant i'm a scotch canadian that immigrated when i was ten my family and uh... was able to work when disney was uh... there I, interviewed and was accepted, and uh, was around Disney uh, enough to be able to uh, have my desire to go back and become an industrial psychologist and work in the Disney organization, because I was so impressed with everything that Disney University and everything else that they created. And watching Disney as much as I was able to and studying his uh, his ability to think three-dimensionally. I mean, he was gifted spatially. I mean, you listen to him talk about things and things that were missing and things that he would visually see in his mind that he wanted to create. And his brother Roy, who was kind of the the financier, trying to keep it together, nuts and bolts in terms of, his Walt was always going in the red because his dreams were ahead of his finances. and His brother Roy tried to keep him, you know, solvent type of thing. But to hear him talk it's some of the pep talks he gave and, and just off the top of his head, how spatially gifted he was! How he could see visions ahead! How he could see uh, things rolling out! He, at that time, you know, uh, the Florida thing was coming together, um, and other places that they were looking at around the world. And um, he, he he was in so many things. He he loved to work with his artists. That was his his greatest passion to be out there, right with them because they were so creative and it was like the bonding was just natural because <laughs> all the spatials were all together you know they were and then his imagineers and um... able to think way out of the box kind of stuff he promoted that imagineering kind of a uh, phenomenon and yeah, we he- that was the early influence in my life
1: we hear a lot of that phrase out of the box think out of the box Uh, Dr. Bayes, do you see that? Is that part of the future, of the success of of individuals, companies, of a nation, when you can get individuals uh, to think out of the box like you're saying that you can do? You can teach us how to process much faster and bigger and wider and deeper.
5: Uh, Absolutely. You know, that's one of the phrases that we've heard so long for uh, so many years, and yet in many ways it's never been clearly defined. But if you think about it, most people's experience typically in school is with verbal and math kinds of activities. And trying to get people to think outside of just verbal and math into the three-dimensional world is a little bit different than they're used to. And so that's one of the things that we, uh, we work extensively on because it's something that we've seen in all kinds of patterns. When you look at Fortune 500 uh, companies and you look at all these people who weren't even college graduates, uh, were excellent students in high school often. Um, But uh, they uh, didn't continue in college. You see that they were, uh, they had this ability to think in three dimensions that uh, a lot of people that went to the university didn't get as much experience with. And uh, one of the things that we also noted is that as you look at uh, top executives around the country who were, uh, you know, like the, uh, you know, like Lee Iacocca from Ford with a mechanical engineering master's degree in uh, in mechanical engineering. Welch, you know, Jack Welch with a PhD in chemistry. You know, the head of Google, you know, a PhD in electrical engineering. The head of Intel, PhD in electrical engineering. What you find about all of these individuals with, with science credentials and those who don't have science credentials is they're both loaded in this one ability called spatial. And that is the ability to think out of the box, not just with words and numbers, but also with pictures and with three-dimensional solutions and ways to make things and to build things and to create things without words or numbers.
1: So your book will help us understand how we can stretch our minds to be able to do that.
5: Absolutely. Absolutely. I, that's my area. That's what I've been working in the last night. Uh, pretty much all my time has been devoted to that one single thing, developing uh spatial ability and visual perception in, uh, in adults
1: and kids. Well, we certainly need that today with all the problems in this country, the problems not only uh, in government and in business, uh, it seems like it permeates society. Of uh, How do we get your book, gentlemen?
4: <laughs>
6: well, we're on um, Amazon.com, we're on Barnes & Noble, um, and it, it's been published uh, just several months now. So, um, but it's in. You can go online and, and uh, get a copy. Um, it's in it's hard, hard, copy, and it's in a, a software copy too.
5: Um,
6: so, uh, yeah, more accessible all the time. Um, but yes, you can go online. Definitely get a copy.
1: Well, why don't you both give us a closing let's thought? A closing uh, thought. Uh, let's start with you, Dr. Graham. Well, let me let me come back to Steve. Uh, Steve, let's say we uh, meet with you
6: 45 minutes a week and uh, we do our visual information processing technology uh, which develops uh, the neural pathways of uh, spatial processing you probably haven't really developed, but we'll develop those in Steve. And after three months, Steve is different. After six months, you walk into any meeting or whatever you're a different person mentally. You think differently. You're wider, higher, broader. Your, your processing is 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 off the charts. <laughs> so, from <clears throat> so will change you in six months, and that's the practice. The practicing side of it. That's the genius that Dr. Bays has has developed uh, over the years. It, it's just an absolutely breakthrough, I think, in science. Take it into our leadership. Um, cap now that uh, we got a great promise for this country to really develop brilliant thinkers. Um, and it's all very capable from from mediocre to brilliant. And within six months, Steve will be a very different person mentally. And you may have a little mental meltdown. It's like I had a couple of cataracts removed this past year. I just walked around Hawaii for like a whole week looking at everything. It was just a phenomenal experience seeing. And not realizing that I was kind of semi-blind, I didn't see all the colors, I didn't see all the hues, I didn't see all the, you know, the, the phenomenal world around me. It opened a whole new world to me, and I think that's what the, what this whole processing does. The science, the technology we've been able to develop, really for leaders.
5: Now this Dr. Bates, I just add to what Dr. Graham said. Um, You know it's about 80 years ago, a guy by the name of Henry Ford walked into a place called the River Rouge and he builds a plant. A plant that employs 100,000 workers. 80 years ago, with one great idea, he employed 100,000 workers and he paid them twice the average salary of the the time. So it was $2 a day and Ford's going to pay $5 a day to 100,000 workers with just a few great ideas, that's all we need. With a few great ideas, we can transform this country. You know, people feel that there's a relative decline going on, relatively, in, in America. Well, in my science academy, we had, just a few months ago, we had a 10-year-old. A 10-year-old scoring 750 on the team math score. And if you would have asked me two years ago if I thought that was possible, because I, I, I never quite worked with a nine or a 10-year-old that was that precocious. But I found that uh, the limits that we're putting upon our children and upon ourselves, if we can just raise that expectation with a little bit of technology, we can do incredible things.
1: Well, gentlemen, you have really given us a whole new view of the world. We really appreciate uh, your instruction and appreciate your work on your new book, the uh, title, Executive Thinking from Brightness to Brilliance. Dr. Morris Graham and Dr. Kevin Bayes, thank you so very much for being on iUniverse Radio.
5: Thank you, Steve. Thank you, Steve.
0: iUniverse Radio is brought to you by iUniverse, the leading book marketing, editorial services, and supported self-publishing company. iUniverse Radio is produced by Toginet Radio. Radio with a cutting edge.